Good afternoon. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. This afternoon, part two, Dr. Peter McLeod, Northern Armageddon, the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, eight minutes of gunfire that shaped a continent. There are many, many interesting stories in this book, but none that tugged up my heart more than the heroic last stand of the first Canadians and the First Nations people fighting side by side to save their homeland, as the French regulars ran for cover in the distance. When the French charge stopped, they're about 20 or 30 meters away from the British, so they're really facing them face-to-face across the space inside of a large classroom. They trade back two or three volleys, something that I always stress, because you often get the impression that the French come up, the British fire one big volley, and the French run away. Actually, as they stand there for 10 minutes, give or take, shooting back and forth in front of another, until finally... The French can't take it anymore, and the French line breaks, and the regulars run. I say the regulars run because the Canadians don't. Canadians and the first people take up position on top of the Boutte de Neuve and keep on fighting. And while the French regulars escape, the Canadians and first people force the British to retreat three times before they're finally outnumbered, pushed off the side of the field, down in the St. Charles Valley. That's quite a heroic last stand. It is, yeah. This afternoon, Northern Armageddon, Dr. Peter McLeod, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, we're speaking today with Dr. Peter McLeod. His book, The Battle of the Plains of Abraham, Northern Armageddon, Eight Minutes of Gunfire That Shaped a Continent. I'm going to take folks back up the hill to the Plains of Abraham. And it's not a very large area, folks. When you think of Plains, don't think of Saskatchewan, for sure. They must have been exhausted. Did they go directly into battle? And the other question I want to ask you is, how did they draw the French out of the fort? Why would the French come out of their protection onto the plains to face the English like that? Well, first of all, as far as I can tell, that they weren't so much tired as teed up and ready to go. And bear in mind, the soldiers, all the soldiers had done was that night was sit in the boats, then walk out the pathway, walk out the roadway to the uh, top, top of the uh, road, the Alpha Boulon, and then uh, walk up maybe 500 meters to the plains of Abraham, take a position there. So they hadn't actually done very much that day. Then um, they started to take station around 6 o'clock in the morning and uh, really waited in that place four hours until the French attacked. Now, as for the French, the garrison in quite inside Quebec City wasn't that big, uh, say about 1,000 troops, give or take. 
uh, the main French army was at Beauport, waiting for a British landing, which didn't come. So it wasn't much a matter of leaving Quebec City, it was a matter of moving as fast as they could from Beauport to the Plains of Abraham. And it took them until 10 o'clock to get the, the entire army mm-hmm. there. And at that point, Montcalm decided he couldn't wait any longer and, and charged down the hill. I see. Okay. So that's what got them out of the fort. Now, you had painted a wonderful picture in the book of the battle. Uh, you had the First Nations people flanking the various sides of the English. Uh, you had Montcalm directly in front of Wolfe's forces, the English forces. Everything looked like it was on Montcalm's side, the French side. What was the pivotal moment or moments of the battle that turned it, from my perspective, to the British side? That was the moment, and I don't know exactly when it was, when Montcalm decided that he was going to charge down the hill hmm. as soon as the last regular battalion arrived. It's, the, it's this decision that makes the difference between the French standing in a very strong position and waiting for the British, and also waiting for the French reinforcements from upriver, mm-hmm. uh, maybe bringing out 20 or 30 heavy guns from the city, maybe 500 soldiers from the city garrison, uh, starting to dig in, build entrenchments, to be as strong as possible, and running down a rough, broken hillside that would smash the formation apart, uh, running towards the British. So whenever it makes that work, whenever Montcalm made that decision, that's, that's the real key point of the battle. They start charging at roughly 10 o'clock in the morning, and that, that is, if you want to pick one time when, uh, the course of Canadian history has changed, it's between 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock and 10.30. The amount of time the French take to run down the hill until they finally reach the British line. Uh, the exchange of fire lasting between 8 and 15 minutes in different parts of the line. Casualties on both sides. Now, we both know both leaders were killed, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and also the casualties on both sides. Just trying to think. I, I don't recall the exact numbers. There are basically a few hundred on both on either side. Mm-hmm. The uh, Most of the British casualties, as far as we can tell uh, were from the uh, First Peoples and Canadian skirmishers on either side. Most of the French casualties come from the British volleys into their lines. When the French charge stops, they're about 20 or 30 meters away from the British, so they're really facing them face-to-face across the space inside of a large classroom. And the difference is that the, the, the sailors in the Royal Navy notwithstanding, the British are well-organized in information and the French are sort of straggling in the position. They're very brave and very eager to fight, but they're not, or they've lost cohesion, they're not organized, whereas the British are. So they trade back two or three volleys, something that I always stress, because you often get the impression that the French come up, the British fire one big volley, and the French run away. Actually, as they stand there for 10 minutes, give or take, shooting back and forth in front of another, until finally the French can't take it anymore, and the French line breaks, and the regulars run. I say the regulars run because the Canadians don't. Canadians and the First Peoples take up position on top of the Boutte de Neuve and keep on fighting. And while the French regulars escape down into the Penchal Valley and back to Beauport, the Canadians and First Peoples force the British to retreat three times before they're finally outnumbered, pushed off the side of the field, 
down in the St. Charles Valley. And so that actually is where the Plains of Abraham ends. It's not in National Battlefield Park, important as that is. It's down in the streets of the St. Charles Valley. That's quite an heroic last stand. It is, yes. And one that is overlooked, because that's the first time I've heard of it. That's quite impressive. One of those situations where the drama of the encounter between Wolf and Montcalm sort of overshadows everything, I think. Whereas, as you say, we should remember the first people in Canadian a great deal more. Without hesitation. Without hesitation. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com I'd like to talk a little bit now of the ramifications, the moments after, and they're in the streets of Quebec City. How do the British take control of Quebec City? How are they able to control the population? Well, first, they have, they have to besiege it. And the French army withdraws that evening. The British occupy the Boots of and start building fortifications. I start, start building siege works, batteries, so they'll install cannon and batter the walls. But inside, many of the garrisons are militia. And they have their families with them. And once they see the French army retreat, they've really had enough. They uh, are still looking to protect the homes and the family. But things have changed, so now, instead of fighting, they start to feel the best way to do this is make some accommodation with the British. And so they basically go to the Commandant of Quebec City and tell him they're not going to fight. And I suspect that the Commandant, whose name is Ramsey, the person the, uh, his family built the Chateau de Ramsey in Montreal, sympathizes with them. It's an inclined to take too far to line. And so when the British summon them to surrender, he agrees and negotiates the situation. Did they make a call towards the clergy because the clergy had such strong powers in those days also? Uh, no, the Catholic they Church? They didn't, eh? You ought to think of the clergy uh, in the French regime more like religious civil servants. They become much more of independent power under the British because there, they, I say in the beginning, they are the only ones who can stand up for the, uh, for the Francophones. Even as time goes on, and you get more and more, um, well, you, you get um, beginnings of responsible government, you get elections to assemblies, you get that uh, new ways to rise to power. The church still remains extremely, extremely important and grows steadily in power. But at the time, they are, as I say, food as public servants. They, um, they run the hospitals, they run the schools, and um, they serve as chaplains and priests. So they're extremely important, but mm-hmm. they're also subordinate to the crown, very aware of it. Mm. Do you feel that the British regretted taking Quebec City? Let me explain in the same terms that uh, there's a very famous saying, when Israel took Gaza, they said that uh, perhaps we've bitten off something that is going to end up choking us. Do you feel the British felt somewhat like that? There were some British officers who uh, were certainly aware of that. There's a famous dialogue between um, Samuel Holm, or between a British British officer and a French officer. British officer says, uh, "Do you think we'll keep Quebec?" And a French officer says, "Well, I really don't know. That's too hot. That's uh, too big for me to answer." And the British guy says, "Well, if we're smart, we won't, because the American colonists need something to keep them under control." 
And if we, uh, if we hand back, uh, Canada and Quebec City, they'll probably rebel. That's right. Well, we think of the, the Battle of Plains of Abraham having enormous consequences for Canada, which, which it did, of course. It also had enormous consequences for the United States. Because this is part of the process that leads to these colonies who are already strong enough to stand on their own to decide they want to be independent. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Peter McLeod. His book, Northern Armageddon. And I'm going to ask you why you picked that title. The Battle of the Plains of Abraham, Eight Minutes of Gunfire That Shaped a Continent. Without hesitation, that is a fact. This is a very, very powerful book. He takes you right into the battle. He identifies the main characters, but also writes in depth about those characters. They actually become human beings and not just historical figures. And that's important to remember that these were people, these were the foundation of what this country is built on with all its mistakes and all its positive, wonderful things that we have. You can get the book, of course, at any chapters and to go right across the country, as I've stated all along. Also, you can go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, click on the book cover. That'll take you right to chapters and to go if you want to order it from the comfort of your own home. I'd like to talk to you now a little bit about the, well, not only the ramifications, I mean, this was a seminal battle for the country. How has the history of this battle been distorted over the years by both sides as kind of a political football in many senses? And perhaps the reality of it, which you've captured in this book, been glossed over? I'm not sure that it has. I'm not not sure that it has. Uh, I think that the most important fact about the battle is that the British win. I think that it has been more distorted as ignored. People who are into political polemics heading in either direction, either um, uh, the Battle of Plains of Abraham is the beginning of the slavery of French Canadians in Canada, or the French are a conquered people and they should be grateful for all the rights the English give them. Really, just as far as they're concerned, all that matters is the British one. As a military historian, I'm more interested in what happened and how this hugely important event actually took place, the role of, of war in shaping Canada. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com I look at this battle, Peter, and it kind of reminds me of the American Civil War in many facets, because it seems that we have a common history, a common idealism, and here we are fighting against our brothers, essentially. When I asked you before if there was ever a hand extended in peace, there was none, and I was kind of shocked to hear that. I thought there would have been some kind of extension for peace. Yeah, but just now, when I think everyone has left it pretty much, they know Canada is a country where people speak both French and English, and that's fine. But, of course, they're not brothers. They're enemies. And they've been enemies or um, or active enemies since 1754. The French have sent raids against British colonies, and they support natives who have launched many more raids against British settlements. And as far as the British are concerned, this isn't legitimate war against waged by people who have been displaced from the homelands of British settlers, it's a whole series of atrocities. And one reason they're there is to take it out on the Canadians. The Canadians have been looking out, seeing the British burning farmhouses everywhere. They've seen them shelling Quebec into rubble. They're not in the mood to, uh, to shake hands either. The really remarkable thing 
is how they managed to settle down afterwards and get along reasonably well after the Seven Years' War. It's not that everyone loved one another all of a sudden, but they did manage to be at least reasonably civilized. Part of this is that for Francophones in Quebec were traditional enemies, the people they've been fighting since the 17th century, whereas the British, actual British from Britain, are relative newcomers, and so they're, they're not as bad. At what point did we move from being British and French to being Canadians? Well, for Francophones, uh, fairly soon. Um, sometime, maybe I, I say that's after the French Revolution, because after the French Revolution, that Acadien and Canadien really sever their ties with mm-hmm. France. France has become something alien to them. Again, Republican revolutionaries who persecute the church and kill the king. Uh, for for uh, English Canadians, there's certainly a very strong sense of provincial nationalism. A sort of Canadian nationalism inside British nationalism is growing in the 19th and 20th centuries. But it's really after the Second World War that uh, English Canadians start deciding that rather than being part of this global community of Anglophones in, inside the British Empire, it's really more important to be Canadians in Canada with, with Canadian Francophones. It's funny, you know, one of the most uniting forces in the country is hockey. And I always laugh at that because, you know, everybody always says, you know, Canada doesn't have a real sense of itself. But by God, come the Olympics. I'll tell you, we do. (laughs) And Team Canada, all the ethnicities fade into the background when that happens. And we certainly do become one solid Canadian bloc. Absolutely. I think that's a healing force in the country. Was there any atrocities committed, any war crimes during the battle that you were able to find? No. I think they're what you could call the uh, usual atrocities that occur in the heat of battle, but no. None at all, okay. It was fought very civilly on both sides, insofar as the battle can be civil. And afterwards, the British uh, did their best to help help the French wounded as well as their own wounded. I know there's been some controversy lately because the French soldiers that fell that day, tragically fell, have been buried in a graveyard, and the English soldiers, the British soldiers that fell that day, were buried, and now it's plowed over with a city street. Well, I think everyone was buried in a mass grave uh, in a battle like that. So how you were buried um, didn't matter which side you were on. Once you were dead, you were dead. And as far as taking people up and reburying them, that's a modern political issue that I really don't know anything about. Lessons learned and lessons not to be repeated. I think if you're ever in a strong position on top of a hill, stay there. Okay, well said. As I look out, we're kind of on top of a hill here in Sudbury looking out on this little beautiful valley. It kind of looks very Christmassy right now with the falling snow. It's very beautiful. Lasting right, legacy. Right, there. Don't grab them up and run down. You'll just get me trouble. <laughs> That's good advice and I can guarantee I won't be doing that. Lasting legacies of the battle? I would say contemporary Canada. Hmm. Well put. Well put. Canada as it is now, um, mixed with Anglophones and Francophones. When you look at the coming of the Loyalists after the uh, American Revolution, the division of North America into Canada in the north, United States in the south, all of that can trace back to the Seven Years' War and the Battle of the Abraham. So you look at, look, at, look at one 
single incident that helped to make us the country we are now, it is that battle on 13 September 1759. The book, Northern Armageddon. Why did you call it Armageddon, by the way? First of all, I wanted an arresting, dramatic title. Something that would reflect the huge impact the battle has had both on the Canadians at the time and Canada now. Hmm. With the Northern, just to make it clear that North equals Canada, Northern Armageddon. The other side is that I'm a colonial historian. I've read many books on colonial history, and I wanted a title without empire or musket or bayonet, anything extension and ordinary. I wanted a title that would stand out. And it would make people who might not be interested in colonial history think that, well, anyone who gives a, a book uh, a title this colorful must have something to say. I'll at least take a look at it and maybe even buy it. And if you're not happy with that, the subtitle is The Battle of the Plains of Abraham, so you still know what it is. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com By the way, folks, at the center of the book, there's some magnificent photographs of some magnificent artwork, and that's well worth getting the book alone, just to look at these wonderful, wonderful paintings. Well-documented well-illustrated, just a a superb book. You've really done uh, outstanding work. This is a Canadian story, folks. It's a true story, and it's important for us to recognize what took place in our history and come to terms with it in our own way. How did our colonialism uh, differ from the British colonialism, say, in India at the time? Well, I think the most important difference is that in in Canada, there is a majority of European colonials, whether they're French, British, German, or some other, some other group, and in a minority of First Peoples, whereas in India, it's all Indians, with just a tiny, tiny British elite over the top. And so when, when British looked at, uh, looked at Canada, they, they could see themselves, and they could see, as early as 1790, let's give these guys self-government, let them run something, give it to the Europeans, who are not the First Peoples. Whereas in India, there's more a feeling of, they're different from us. We have to run the place. I don't care how many, how many of these guys go to Oxford and are brilliant and well-educated. It's still better to have the British running thing. It's ethnicity. It does come back down to that, doesn't it, Always. I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. This show is syndicated right across the country from coast to coast to coast. It's syndicated through the university slash community radio networks. So primarily the, uh, the audience, the demographic of the audience is university students. What would you say to them if you were standing in front of all of those folks in a lecture as a final parting words? Uh, number one, buy the book. Number two, it's, if you want to understand Canada, you have to understand Canadian military history. And if you want to understand the country that we are now, you have to understand the Battle of Plains Abraham and its consequences. Folks, we've been speaking with Dr. Peter McLeod. Dr. Peter McLeod, of course, is a military historian. He is the pre-Confederation historian at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. And he's got a couple of other books out. He's got the Canadian Iroquois and the Seven Years' War. He lives in Ottawa. He's a graduate of the University of Toronto, the University of Saskatchewan, University of Ottawa, PhD, of course, in history in 1991. 
and a good-looking lad. I'm looking at his picture right now. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your time with us. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com I'd like to thank Dr. Peter McLeod for joining us this afternoon and telling us about this important moment in our Canadian history. Indeed, it is moments like this that contribute to the fabric that make up our Canadian nation. Coming up on Brent Holland, Aaron Brockovich. You've seen the movie Julia Roberts played her in the Academy Award winning movie? I grew up and education was hard for me because I'm a dyslexic. So I was labeled a lot of things. But what I learned was, see, that was their choice to see me as a loser. It didn't have to be my choice. And so I encourage people, if you face issues like that, don't let somebody else's words or thoughts or visions of how they see you become you because you can choose to see yourself differently. What I work in and my job is life is so precious and, and it's a gift for all of us and that it doesn't matter your party affiliation or the color of your skin or your gender or whether you're rich or poor, we're all entitled to that gift and none of us have any right to take that from somebody else. And if someone, if you know something, the worst thing, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to you? If what, somebody's going to put you down? You know what? Get past that. Choose to see yourself as a strong person, as a leader, no matter what walk of life you are from. If you see a situation that's wrong, to make it right and just let all those things go by you. You know, many times I hear my mother's voice and she died in my arms two years ago and she always oh. taught me you know, Aaron, be a duck and let comments like that just roll off your back. Practice stick to itiveness. Have that pernacity and persistence and tenacity to move forward. Choose to see yourself as that leader, no matter what walk of life you were from, and be positive about who you are. You can change the way your life is. Aaron Brockovich coming up on Brent Holland. Stand by to be inspired. Also coming up on Brent Holland in the next few weeks, Dr. David Suzuki, arguably one of the most sought-after Canadians in the country. He will be here to tell us how we can participate on an individual basis. As Marshall McLuhan says, there are no passengers on Spaceship Earth. We are all the crew. Dr. David Suzuki coming up on Brent Holland. Also coming up on Brent Holland, a harrowing story, Katie Calloway Hall will be joining us to tell us her story, kidnapped and raped in 1976 by Philip Garrido. Also, Dr. David Guggenheim, the ocean doctor, you've seen him on the Discovery Channel, you've seen him on the History Channel, he will be here also. Wade Davis also will be joining us. Ian Gill, live from Australia. Lots of great guests coming up on the Brent Holland Show. Also, head on over to the Brent Holland Show, www.brenthollandshow.com. Go to the archives. There is a plethora of shows there and a wealth of information, all for you to download free. That's right. Just download them, put them on your iPod. When you're traveling in the car, if you're on the bus, on the way to school, on the metro, perfect thing to listen to. There are shows there on Minnie Jean Brown. She's a civil rights legend, one of the original Little Rock Nine, 1957, Little Rock, Arkansas. There's a show on the first African-American Secret Service agent. 
Abraham Bolden, handpicked by John F. Kennedy himself to serve on his protective team. There's a show on Lydia Reich there. Lydia Reich, of course, was a Holocaust survivor, befriended Anne Frank in the camps. A true, true harrowing story. All those shows for you to download free. I want to thank you all for listening, and please do continue with your emails, Show at gmail.com, and I will respond to them. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Thank you.